The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 5 through 613. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But the Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmakers of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmakers and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmakers were urgent, saying, Complete your work your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmakers had sent over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in the hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to speak to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6 But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? 
for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. If you'd open up your Bibles, please, please to Exodus chapter 5. And actually what we're going to do is we're going to start in the last verse of chapter 4 last week. Chapter 4, verse 31 If you're just joining us, we are going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's the second book uh, or the second chapter of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, You can call this your Old Testament or call it the Hebrew scriptures. Um, And that's what we're studying right now. We went through Genesis a few years ago. We're in Exodus right now. And we are knee deep in this study that's going to take us at least a year. Um, I'm adding to it as we go. Um, but you see, we're, we're taking two chapters today, and I'm going to try to do justice to that to the best of my abilities. Won't be able to hit everything by far, but what, here's what's going on. God's people have, fo- have found themselves in Egypt. They multiplied. They grew. Pharaoh saw them, this immigrant population. He looked at them, and he saw them as a threat to them as a threat to their kind of national security, as a threat to their national livelihood, as a threat to their commerce and their economy. And so he said, we will oppress this minority. We will oppress this group of people so that we can preserve Egypt, right? He did so in in heinous and horrific ways. He did so through basically the abortion of the day, forced abortion of the day. Every Hebrew son that's born, throw him in the Nile, they said. And he did this through means of enslaving the people and putting heavy burdens on them and oppressing them and keeping justice just out of their reach. And he did this for hundreds of years because it was more than just one Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh. And God sent, God raised up this man named Moses, even though Moses tried to redeem Israel in his own strength, ended up murdering an Egyptian goes back to the backside of the desert, spends 40 years there where God begins to work on him and make him into a meek man, a humble man, a gentle man, a man who doesn't step out in his own strength, but steps out in the strength of the Lord. And last week we saw that God went back, found Abraham in the burning, or Abraham, Moses in the burning bush. He says to him, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses got all these kind of back and forths with him. Yet last week we saw that God speaks to Moses and says, what's that in your hand? And it's kind of his core functional identity as a shepherd. It's a staff in his hand. It represents everything he is. He's been this past 40 years. And God says, throw it down at my feet. And he throws it down. It becomes a snake. And he picks it back up. And all this crazy stuff starts happening and doing miracles. And Moses goes back to the people of Israel and he shows them these signs. And what happens? This is what happens right here. This is what happens. Chapter 4. Verse 31, and the people, that's Israel, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, now they've been in slavery for about 400 years here. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Chapter four ends in worship. Now, what is worship? Many of us think that worship is what we do here on Sunday morning. You're correct. Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines worship as the expression of reverence and adoration of God. What we are doing today is reverent worship. We are worshiping and adoring God. That's why we're here. God calls us into that. We respond through our liturgy, through our work, through our singing, through the preaching. We do that. Now, But here's the thing. Worship is more than just singing and preaching and reading. If you Google it, Wikipedia tells you the word worship comes from two English words, worth and ship. Etymologized, it's worthiness or worth-ship, which means in its simplest terms, to give worth to something. That's what worship is, to give worth, to ascribe worth, to ascribe praise to something. So let me break this down for us a little bit. Let me just kind of pull that apart and and give us a workable kind of idea and definition for us. In worship, I see something that's glorious, beautiful, or valuable. I then 
These are components of worship. I see something valuable. I then devote myself to that thing or God or whatever. And then I make sacrifices to it. I make some kind of sacrifice to it. That's worship. Three components, glory, devotion, sacrifice. If you have the means to go quickly, you can flip over to Romans chapter 11, the last verse in Romans chapter 11, and the first verse in Romans chapter 12, where Paul gives us these three components of worship while he's going through this phenomenal doxology, this worship service kind of response at the end of chapter 11. And he says this, for from him, that's Jesus. So let me just put Jesus' name in there. For from Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things. To Jesus be glory forever. Amen. You see glory there. That's his worship. Now look at verse 12. I appeal, or chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, to present your bodies, to give yourself to, to be devoted to something, See, devotion. And then he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, that's worship. Glory, dedication, sacrifice. So for the Christian, we see God as our highest glory we devote ourselves to him and we lay down our lives in service to him. Our desires, our wants, we lay it down in service to him. Our lives live for him and his mission. This is our spiritual worship. But using that same definition from Romans eleven thirty six and 12, 1, and kind of the Wikipedia definition as well, we see that worship isn't just for people who consider themselves religious. To see something valuable or attractive or beautiful and then devote yourself to it and make sacrifices for it is actually something we do all the time in many different areas of our life. We, let me just use an example here. We drive through a car lot and imagine ourselves behind the wheel of a brand new 2017 F-150. Be really general. <laughs> we find it glorious. It's beautiful. Look at the lines. Oh, it shines. The tires. Your phone just connects to it. You don't got to plug it in. That's worth the 20 grand. 20 grand just for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We say to ourselves, like, what, what, what's the next response? We see it as glorious. We see it as beautiful. Then what do we do? What's worship do? Dedicate. We ded our, dedicate ourselves to it. How can I make this mine? Well, there's one way, and that's, there's only one way, and that's to make a great sacrifice for it. It's going to take a whole lot of your hard-earned money to drive that truck. And if you don't have the money, you are going to really de be devoted to it because you're going to be a slave to the dealership or the bank for the next three to five years. Now, is that wrong? Maybe and maybe not. Here's the problem. Every one of us, because we're created, we have limited resources. We all have a limited amount of time and money. And that time and money is going to flow to whatever we find the most glorious. Your money flows to whatever you find as the most glorious. That's how worship works. So this is where the problem arises. For a Christian who worships God or who says they worship God, he is our highest glory. There is no one like him. He's far more glorious than any created thing, even a glorious F-150. So he deserves our worship. He earned it. He, we owe it to him literally as creator, as redeemer. We owe it to him. So he deserves our worship. He's earned our worship through creating us and sustaining us. And obviously through the giving of his son in our place for our sins to make us right with God. So what's Wrong with making such sacrifices to a new vehicle? Well, it depends. 
Are you using the resources meant for God on that truck? Is that truck taking the place of God in your life? Are you spending more money on that vehicle than you are giving to God? Or are you spending as more of your heart, more of your mind used in devotion to getting, keeping, and maintaining that vehicle than you do serving God? If you are, or if you do, that isn't just, you know, a little circumstantial problem. That is a worship problem. That's how a good thing becomes a bad thing. Is there anything, you tell me there's something wrong. What do you want me to do? Just drive a clunker around? Drive a bicycle? No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying the truck is a bad thing. We're saying when a good thing gets more worship than God, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a little G God thing in your life. And that is a bad thing. And that's what the Bible defines as sin. When any created thing squeaks its way into our heart and minds into the place of worship and steals worship that's devoted, that should be devoted to God, steals that away from God, that thing is an idol. That thing is sin. That thing is, becomes bad. So with that definition of worship, it's easy to see that many people in our world, even people who claim Christ, actually worship their car or their job or their girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or one of the most common things in our city, in our area, is to worship your children. Now, why is that? Why do we worship? Well, funny thing, the world, our culture, you know, science, doesn't have, it really doesn't have an answer. They, they try to appeal to some kind of evolutionary process, that, you know, but it does, they just don't have an answer to this. But when we go back to the scriptures, when we go to God, God at Christianity actually has a very good answer to this question. Why do we worship? Like there's no one who can't put something at the top of their mind, the top of their heart and worship that thing. Everybody worships something. Why? Well, Christianity says you were built created for glory. You were made by God in his image to behold his glory. And that means you were created to kind of crave beautiful things and worship beautiful things. You were created to worship and enjoy and sacrifice yourself for glory. And of course, that means you were created to glorify and enjoy God above anything else because he is the ultimate source of beauty, joy, and glory. So biblically, you know, Bible says nothing in all of creation can satisfy your thirst for glory except for God, right? You go and sacrifice and devote yourself to that brand new F-150 and a few years from now, especially in the Quad Cities, a few years from now, there's these orange spots showing up on the thing. Something in creation is actually eating your treasure, right? It's rusting, why is this happening? The glory fades. Ichabod, no. Right? Like the glory fades because it's a created thing. Now, this is interesting. Uh, self-expressed agnostic and one of the, many people say, the best writer of this generation, uh, David Foster Wallace, he was speaking to a, a college, Kenyon, Kenyon University, uh, at the commencement speech. And listen what he said here. This is his speech from an agnostic. Somebody who's experienced the top of the ladder of his success too. Uh, because here's something else I'm quoting. Here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you 
tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we already know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front of your daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. End quote. Very insightful. See, what he doesn't know, and he says they're not sin, but they, actually that is sin in biblical terms, and the Bible actually gives him definition and handles for what he's experiencing there. See, there is nothing in creation that can handle the weight of glory that's required in our worship. We're built to worship something bigger than sex, something bigger than money, something bigger than a new vehicle, something bigger than another person. We're meant to worship God and only God can handle the weight of our actual worship. There's nothing in creation that can handle that weight. Listen, if you worship your kids and just think how easy it is to do, Who in your life are you more dedicated to? You love them. You pray for them. You're constantly thinking and strategizing ways to make their lives better and their futures brighter and more secure. See, good parents are devoted to their children, right? And think about the sacrifices you make for your children. Think about the time. Think about the sleepless nights. Think about the money. By the time that your child is 18, you've spent a fortune on them. Don't ever let the thought slip into your head of, what else could I have done with that money? (laughs) Don't don't do it. It's a dark path. (laughs) Being a good parent requires a tremendous amount of dedication and a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And this is why it's so easy to worship them. Glory, dedication, sacrifice. To make an idol out of our children. See, and I know this. We might not ever say that we love them more than we love God. But our actions often show it. Our worship shows it. Our time, your money, your devotion flows to what you think matters most. That's worship. We see it in little things. We're so devoted to our children that we think we can control their outcome. If I, you know what? They have sports on Sunday. I want to love my kids. I want to bless my kids. I want to be a great parent to my kids. They might make the big league someday. They might do this. So what's, what's missing church occasionally for a sporting event? What's the big deal? Where's your worship flowing? as much as that hurts, that's a worship problem. And you're teaching your children to worship themselves. And so when they get to teenagers and they get a little jobby job and that boss says, hey, why don't you work on Sundays? They yeah, I don't see any problem with that. And then when they go to college, Sundays are just kind of a bore. That's the day I get to sleep in, just hang out. It's the only guy I get to chill dad. So I just stop going to church when I'm in college. It's not that big a deal. You told me like my needs and my stuff is more important than the gathered church anyways. So taught me that. And then we go, then when they walk away from the faith, we go, we didn't teach our children. We raised them better than that. No, we did not. We raised them to worship their preferences. We raised them to worship their potential as a, whatever it is. Practice is more important. We worship them. 
We taught them to worship something other than God. And when it brings fruition in their life as teenagers or in college, we get surprised by it. It starts here. The worship of God and the gathering of his people is a priority. It's a priority to God. Now, how do you know if you have a worship problem? How do you know if you're worshiping something other than God? Well, this is exactly what these two chapters of Exodus are kind of all about. The Israelites don't even know they have a worship problem. They have an idolatry problem. They think their problem is just circumstantial. If you go to them and say, hey, what's your problem? They'd be like, what's my problem? Look at my back. That's my problem. I'm being beat by that harsh taskmaster right there. That's my problem. My circumstance is clearly my problem. So anything you can do to fix my circumstance, that's what I need. But they don't understand there's something going on deeper in their heart that has to be changed, has to be worked on. God has to be the surgeon that opens them up and goes to work on the inside of them before he changes their circumstance. They spent 400 years in slavery and slavery has shaped something. I'm going to say it shaped their worship in such a way that that has got to be dealt with before God delivers them from Egypt. And in order for that to be dealt with, here's the bad news. Things are about to get worse. The Israelites are serving an idol and God and his kindness. Please hear me. The God and his kindness and his graciousness is trying to pry their hands off this false God. And he's going to deliver them so they can be free to worship him. The only true God who can satisfy their soul. But here's the thing about idolatry. We've, we make our idols in our own image. We choose our own idols. We like them. We, they make them feel war, us warm and fuzzy and comfortable. And so we hold on to them. And so when God begins to pry our fingers off them, it's painful. We think he's trying to kill us. He's taking our precious from us. And so, in the last chapter, God promised redemption. He saw their struggle, and he has said he's going to redeem them. But here we begin to see that the redemption God has planned for them is different from what they were expecting. We expect things when we come to Christ, when we come to God, we expect things to go from hard to easy. We don't expect them to, from, to go from hard to harder. And so many times, like them, we lose faith and we're shocked when it happens. So, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, this is where we're at. Think about this. Everybody's excited. 400 years of slavery. Moses showed back up. He has got the rod of God in his hands. That's what it said. He's got the rod of God. He's about to whoop some uglies on Pharaoh and deliver us out of here. This is going to be great, grand. Can you imagine the conversations around the campfire at night? It's about to happen, son. We've been longing for this for hundreds of years, and redemption draweth nigh. Our Redeemer is here. This is great. But what the people fail to realize, God has just fired the first shot in the war for their worship. Pharaoh doesn't see them, himself as their ruler or boss or president. No, he fancies himself a God. He doesn't just want their labor. He wants their worship. And here in chapter five, we see this war for worship begin to take place. And like all wars, it gets ugly before it gets better. Chapter five, verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, you should underline this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should, that I 
should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, just to clarify, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So please see this. The people of Israel, God has spoken to them. They deliver the word. Moses delivers the word to Pharaoh. He says, God says, let my people go that they may have a feast. This is worship. They may go sacrifice to the Lord. They may go worship our God. And Pharaoh goes, who is the Lord? I don't know him. He's not my God. And look look how he responds. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burden. See, Pharaoh literally considers himself a god. You see the pictures of the pharaohs of the old. They wore the big serpent on their head. They had the serpent on their staff. They, that, was a signif- that was one of their gods that they signified. They believed that then they themselves had been chosen by the gods and that the pharaoh was actually God himself. So when this... Hebrew guy comes up and says, let my people go. He's like, I don't recognize your God. I am God myself. And I say, no, get back to work. The gospel message of deliverance that God says, I'm going to deliver my people so they can worship me makes Pharaoh, watch this, makes Pharaoh lose his mind. He freaks out. This false God goes crazy when the people might actually transfer their worship to the real God. And look what he does. And verse five, and Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. You want them to take a weekend off to worship God? No way. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen now, look, let me say this. This is how you know he's after, one of the ways you know he's after worship and not, you know, they're building pyramids, right? They're building the great cities. Pharaoh doesn't just want them to be productive. He's not just after what they can produce. You see by his response here. He's about to, he's about to be cruel and unjust and go, I want the same amount of work produced, but I want to make it harder for you. I'm not going to give you any straw. If he would have said, I want you to produce twice as many bricks, then he sees the people just as cogs in his machine to, produce, to build his empire. But he sees them as more than that. He wants them to worship him. He wants them to recognize he's the only God, not Yahweh. So look how he responds. The same day, verse 6, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Okay, any manager would know to put something into your workers, you know, plate that makes them less productive does not help your bottom line, right? Like, no, no, we're not going to have a copy machine here. You actually go down the street and make a copy every time you need to make a copy, right? This is just frustrating them. This is just bringing animosity and just showing his hatred towards them, okay? He wants their worship. But verse eight, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. So their bottom line numbers need to say the same. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. See, this is what all idols do. Hear me. If you have been worshiping something other than God and you decide to make some changes in your life, you try to get your worship back in order where you're worshiping God above whatever that other thing is, it gets worse before it gets better. See, when idols get threatened by the worship of God, idols freak out. I've seen it a hundred times. Boy, girl, relationship, They're living in sinful relationship. One of them comes to Christ or one of them gets convicted of their sin and wants to live their life for Christ and wants to lay their life down to Christ, wants to offer their body up as a living sacrifice and therefore they cannot offer up their body as a sacrifice to this boyfriend or girlfriend anymore. And what happens? The other party loses their mind. Here's what they usually say. What? Who told you to do this? What? You're a part of a cult. What? Why? 
They're not getting their worship anymore. That living sacrifice, that body that was laid down for them is now being laid down for the father. They, they lose their mind. They freak out. Kids too. Kids do the same thing. You put kids in check. They want your worship. All of it. I got a two-year-old right now. That just three other kids are talking at the same time. I'm in the corner with my like this. My wife sent me this picture of our little baby from like a year, a year ago or no, no, it was two years ago from when she was just born. I said, Oh, I looked at it this week. I was in my office. See, it's a key piece of the story. I was in my office where things are quiet. I looked at that. I said, Oh, she's so cute. How can I not have another one? How could we not have another one? And then I went, I got home and I said, Oh God, how could I ever have another one? The idols, when you threaten them, when you say, I'm not going to give them my worship anymore, I'm going to love them. Something, some of these are good things. I'm going to love them, but I'm going to love them in order. God has my heart first. If we've been worshiping something else, those idols freak out. I can imagine the Israelites right here are going, is this what redemption looks like? You promise redemption and then it gets worse. Look, verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, look at this, thus says Pharaoh. Remember what I told you to highlight in verse one? Thus says the Lord. They go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We know what he said. Thus says Pharaoh. I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work. Your daily task each day, as when there was straw, and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So you see the brutality here. We're making your work harder. You got to go find straw to make the bricks. We're, we're demanding you produce the same amount and we're beating you while you're doing it and saying, why can't you do better? Why aren't you producing more? See, can I tell you, this is what idolatry leads to. This is kind of the life cycle of idolatry. You get to this place where you're worshiping something other, other than God and it becomes addictive and it becomes always uh, more bricks, less straw. So you're, you're, you have to put more effort in, but you're getting less return. It's a cycle of addiction. If you know anything about the cycle of addiction, take that first hit. Wow. It's so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden you, you need more and more and more of it and you never get that high back and you never get that high back and it's just, and it's just that cycle. This is idolatry 101. Same amount of bricks, less straw. Less return on your investment. Serve me, serve me, serve me, serve me. More goods to be consumed. More square footage to be consumed. Better vacations to be had. More, more, more. verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. So listen, here, here's the foreman. Now think of it. This is Israel. This is a leader of the people of Israel. They go to their, their slave masters. And this is what they say. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Can't they say to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is your own people. Isn't it interesting here that when things go from bad to worse, the Israelite leaders go back to their oppressors for help instead of God. The woman who's been abused goes back to her oppressor 
Like the addict goes back to his drugs. Speaking to Pharaoh, they call themselves his servants three times. Whose servants are they? Who are they worshiping? You see, Exodus is more than just a political move freeing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. This is a war for their worship. God has called them sons in chapter 4, verse 22, but they still call themselves the servants of Pharaoh. And so when things get dark and difficult and they don't understand what's going on in their lives, they run back to Pharaoh as slaves rather than to God as sons and daughters. This is another horrible consequence of idolatry. Who or what do you go to when things get bad in your life? Where do you run? You cry out to God like Moses does in verse 22, or do you run to your idols like the Israelites do? Things are going off the walls at home, so you run to work. You run to your kids. You run to alcohol or drugs. You run to your hobby. If you do, You've got a worship problem. You are worshiping in an idol. And one of the most damaging realities of idolatry is that false gods are never appeased and they never give grace. Look at verse 16. This is his response. Or we already said 16. Look at verse 17. They said, your servants, your servants, your servants. Look how he says, look what Pharaoh does in 17. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. You are idle. You are idle. They go to their oppressors for grace, but all they get is more oppression. There is something wrong with you, Pharaoh says. You are weak. You are broken. You are idle. If you were a better worker, if you were a better parent, if you were a better leader, this wouldn't be happening to you. See, the striking thing about idols is that they are graceless. If you ever fail them, they curse you. See, if you worship your kids and and One day, you're going to fail them. You are going to hurt them emotionally or fail to give them what they want. You've spent five years on piano lessons, but the kid wants to dance. And then they realize that you have failed them in some way. What will they do? They do what most kids do. They will blame you when they realize that you've hurt them, when they realize you failed them, they will say something terrible. I hate you. You never loved me. How could you do this to me? Why didn't you do this for me? And what will that do to you? It'll kill you. It'll make you want to stop living. Why? Because they aren't just your children in a way. They are your God, your reason for living, your meaning. You've done more than love them. You've worshiped them for the past 15 years and idols never give grace. You fail them and they curse you and you die a million deaths before you die your final death. The man who wrote that moving speech a few years later committed suicide himself. Idols never fail to fail and they never give grace. Only God gives grace. Verse 19. 
the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. Look here. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So Moses leads the people up, says, okay, you guys go talk to Pharaoh. They go in to talk to their oppressors. Their oppressors give them no grace. You are idle. You are idle. If you were a better worker, this wouldn't be happening. If you were a better parent, this wouldn't be happening. Puts more weight on them. They come out. They see Moses and Aaron. What do you think their response is? And they said to them, verse 21, this is what they say to Moses and Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're saying, shame on you, Moses, for making our false gods mad at us. Shame on you, Moses. How God will judge you for that. How dare you anger our false idols? Now, I'm just going to let that sit. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? It's, listen, I'm just going to say this right here. As a pastor, sometimes it's my job to wound you in a loving, graceful way as a shepherd is trying to swat a sheep to get it back from going off the cliff, right? I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy wounding. I don't enjoy provoking you. I don't enjoy that. I like to feel good, and I like you to like me, and I like to be good. I don't like to make things weird at the door, okay? Oh, you know. You know because you think I was preaching right to you, and so you don't want to look at me when you come by. I know. I can tell. Oh, that person's convicted. They won't look me in the eye. They're trying to sneak by me. <laughs> trying to get behind my back at the door. I don't like to do that. The Spirit does that. That's part of my job to do that as a shepherd to do that. I don't like to do that. But here, listen, when you chain yourself to an idol, you're going to be angry if I take an ax to that idol. Okay, I'm going to say this. If you've changed yourself to the Republican Party, I'm going to try to take an ax to that because that is not your God. If you change yourself to the Democratic Party, I'm going to try to take an ax to that. If you've changed yourself to America, I'm going to try to take an ax to that because none of those things are your God. Or your race. I'm going to take an ax to that. Or your little sweet babies, your children. Taking an ax to that. They're not your God. And this, so Moses says, why have you done evil? Moses says, I said the right words and it got worse for them. I preached the gospel to them in a sense and it got worse for them. Why are you doing this, God? And then Moses, whoo, audacity. He says this in 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, Pharaoh, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. God is gracious. God is patient. God is kind. Look at this next section that we're going to read here is kind of funny. You've been with us the last few weeks. Because it's almost like, well, it is. God says nothing new. He's like, remember what I told you last week? Copy and paste that, put it in right here. This is what God says, chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I don't, who does Pharaoh think he is? 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, this is so good. When, you, when Moses is so confused about what's going on in his life, you know what the answer is? Theology. That's the answer. The answer isn't, let me show you everything I'm doing right now to work out your redemption so that you are comfortable with your situation and the furthering of your redemption. He doesn't show him behind the curtain. He goes, theology 101, I'm the Lord. I'm God. I spoke to your ancestors. Let's keep going. Verse four, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord, God-centered. Didn't give him a lesson on suffering. Didn't get him a lesson on how to get through the next couple months with a tough Egyptian taskmaster. Didn't meet their felt needs. Gave him theology 101. Turn from Pharaoh, turn to me. Disregard Pharaoh's words. Regard my words. Look at me. God responds here and nothing has changed in their situation. And nothing, nothing changes in his response. I will deliver you. What is the result of worshiping an idol? Look at verse 10. Oh no, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their spirit is broken. God promises redemption. He offers grace and rescue from their slavery. But the word of God bounces off them like a glass marble off a sidewalk. I don't want to hear it, Moses. See, there's a war going on here for their worship. And let me just tell you, this is what real redemption looks like. It's not just a change in circumstances. We all just want to pray for a better spouse or pray for more obedient children or pray for an easier job or a more comfortable, you know, better behaved neighbors or better boss or better. We want to change in our circumstances, but that's not the way redemption works. And God doesn't just make us better people. Just I'm going to improve your circumstances just a little bit. No, 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 no. There's a war going on here and God has got to get down inside them. The Israelites must choose whose words will they believe? Will they believe their False God, their harsh, demanding, ruthless God who uses them and abuses them, but just keeps them around to build this empire and worship him. See, this is the God that they know. This is the God that they've known all their life. They're really familiar with this God. They know what to expect from this God. Maybe all they should do is just put their head down, just take the abuse and just put some food on the table. Just suck it up and keep going. Or... Will they believe Yahweh? The God who answers by fire. The God who speaks through Moses. The God that turns water to blood and sticks to snakes and snakes to sticks and can change your identity and can call you a son even though you recognize yourself as a servant of Pharaoh. There's a war going on for their worship. And I think we so easily forget that we're living in a war. Right now, we're living in a war for our worship. See, so many of us, we thank God and we sing his praises when things are going the way that we want them to, but when things get strange, 
when we don't understand why our relationships aren't working like we want them to, and our kids aren't obeying like we want them to, and the money isn't coming in like we expect it to, we become cold and hard towards God. I had a man of God tell me this week when I was talk, counseling him, and I spoke the word of God to him, and he said, don't speak the word of God to me, I know it all. This is a pastor. Marble. Boom. Bounces off. My circumstances are too troubling. My spirit is broken. My harsh slavery. I don't want to receive. I don't want to listen to God. This shows us that we have been worshiping an idol. We're expecting God to serve that idol with us. Can you think this? It seems like here that the Israelites, you know what they want? It seems like what they want is God to speak to Pharaoh and make him into a nice guy. Come on, just speak to Pharaoh. Give us 40 hours a week, two weeks off, vacation, nice income, not too much, but just, you know. It, it, that's what it seems like, like, and later on, if they're out in the desert, you're going to see more of this. See, this shows us the sad reality of idolatry. The people have more faith in their false God than they do in their real God. Their spirit is broken and they go back to work and wish Moses had never come to them. And I think we do the same thing all the time. When trusting God seems difficult, we just take our worship to another God. But here's the good news this morning. There was a man who worshiped God only. There was a man who worshiped God perfectly and rejected and despised every idol that was offered to him. He has been the sole human being to ever win the war of worship, and because of his victory, God is perfectly pleased with him. Jesus Christ was the only man to ever give God the worship that he deserves. Now, why does that matter for us? This is why in the prime of Jesus' life, around the age of 33, while in perfect health, while all the potential lies before him of what he could do with his life, Jesus offered himself up in a prisoner exchange. He said to God, take me and give grace to everyone who has will ever put their faith in you, God. Everyone who will ever put their faith in the Father, give grace to them, punish me. Put the wrath on me. And in the garden, on the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his best friends, this is what it says, he groaned. He sweat drops of blood. And he prayed to God, please take this cup from me. See, redemption was uglier than he ever imagined. Redemption was costlier than he ever imagined. Redemption was bloodier than he ever imagined. The weight of the world's sin was on his shoulder, and he groaned, and he said, make this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering, this cup of sin, take it away from me. But he said, but not my will. Your will be done. See, that's the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus and the Israelites, Jesus and Moses. That's the difference. Jesus succeeded where we fail. Jesus kept the faith. Even when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus kept the faith. Do you know Jesus in those moments was offered? He could, he could have turned his faith to an idol. The devil had already offered him the world without a cross. 
a kingdom without a cross. He could have called angels right then and rescued him from that moment. He could have chosen comfort if he wanted it. But Jesus chose to trust God and obey him even as the nails were going into his hands and feet. Even as the creation that he spoke into existence and the creation that he sustains by his power was conspiring against him to kill him. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what did God do? God resurrected him. God glorified him. God exalted him above every king and ruler of the world. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He was the world's only truly innocent sufferer. But suffering never made Jesus stop worshiping God. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, we have redemption. Think about this. There's a real work that needs to be done by you. The work of salvation has already been accomplished by Jesus on the cross, but your work right now is, will you trust him? Will you turn from your idol and put your faith in the living God, Jesus Christ? And when you do that, listen, this is what happens. When you reject your idol and you turn away from that idol and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and start trusting Jesus Christ, Jesus gives you his righteousness, his standing with God, his perfection, his whole, he's, it's counted towards you. Unbelievable. The Jesus, the one who should curse us, the one who should condemn us, the one who we should we run to like Pharaoh and we want, we think Jesus is going to say, idol, 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 get back to work. That's not what he does. He says, God, forgive them, and he gives us grace. Only Jesus. See, this is why Jesus is better than an idol. You go to an idol, it says more, 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 more. Work harder. You go to Jesus, he says, it's finished. You go to an idol, what do you hear? It's never done. The work is never done. You go to Jesus, what do you hear? It is finished. Trust me. You fail Jesus, what do you hear when you fail Jesus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's already been crucified. He's already been resurrected. He's already been glorified. We're already forgiven. When you're at your worst, look to the cross. He's at his best. He's already given you grace. He's already forgiven you. Only God and only Jesus is the God who, when you fail them, gives you grace. Every other idol, it's never finished. More, more, more. Only Jesus has the power. See, this is what I expect. This is I expect when I preach like this and I talk to you like this, I expect for you to see Jesus as the most glorious God of the universe that any mind could ever imagine, outside of any mind could imagine because our mind didn't imagine him. God, he is. I am who I am, right? We saw that a couple weeks ago. Well, Jesus, you know, says before Abraham was, I am. To connect us with the I am of Exodus. That Jesus is the most glorious savior the world has to offer, and I want you to see that, and I want that, to see him as glorious, to win the war of your worship, and for you to be dedicated to him, and spend the the rest of your life awed at him, and living your life as a sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable to the Lord. So that's why I don't give you three points in a poem, most sermons. My goal is to make you go, ah, Jesus. That's my goal. And then you go out of here changed. I want God in the moment, through the power of the spirit, to change your heart, to wreck your idols, to ruin you for anything but Jesus. And you go out of here awed by him and want to live the rest of your life for him. I don't care what you do with your money outside of that. I don't care three, about your three steps to parenting outside of that. I don't care about three steps to a happy marriage outside of that. I will never preach that junk from the stage. I want you to see Jesus and go, whoa, baby. That's what I want. I get a whoa, baby. Woo. Okay. Sorry. I was seeing Jesus right there and I was saying, whoa, baby, that's just what happened. Okay. That's just what happened. Jesus, the only son of God 
who willingly became a slave and was treated like a slave so that us slaves to sin, slaves to idols could become sons through his life, death, burial, and resurrection in the kingdom of Jesus. Slaves to sin become sons of God. You enter into that kingdom by faith. Will you believe today? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for what you've done. How everything in Exodus points to what Jesus did. God, ruin us for our idols. Peel them from our hands. Peel them from our hands. We're kicking and screaming, wanting to keep them because we're comfortable with them. But they do not serve us. They do not love us. They do not give us grace. They do not help us. Peel them from our hands. Peel the American idols that we cling to so closely. Peel them from our grip. Out of love. Because you love us. And you want us to have hearts that are free to worship you. Because only you satisfy. Not you plus money. Not you plus success. Or you plus power. Or you plus children. Only you satisfy. And Father, as we lift up our empty hands to you, because we bring nothing but our sin to you, would you place your body, the body of your son, into our hand? Would you place the blood of your son into our mouth, reminding us that it's his body that was broken, that it's his blood that was shed, that he is our righteousness. He is our right standing with the Father. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus and he's pleased with us and he doesn't speak like a taskmaster and says more, more, more. It's never done. It's never enough. But he speaks to us and says, it is finished. You're fully satisfied with your son and therefore you're fully satisfied with us. Father, let us eat in worship this morning. Let us eat in worship glorious name of Jesus, the Son of God, the conquering King. We say amen and amen.